Hello everyone, it's August 29th, 2023. Well, Chandrayaan 3 is now on the surface of the moon. We'll discuss that successful feat and what we can expect from it. Then we're going to talk with IEEE senior member David Witkowski about communication protocols on Earth and space to the moon and back. So let's do it and lift off. And we've created the tower. Welcome to episode 424 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So did you all see the uh, static fire footage from spacex i actually did not i knew about it but i didn't i didn't even watch it is it crazy impressive well i'm looking at a tweet right now (laughs) yeah i mean the the video is like really clear and lovely like you know great Mm -hmm. uh camera skills but like yeah it's really cool to see the deluge system apparently working flawlessly um Mm. it's still running at the end of the video so you can't see if there's any damage but like it it looks like everything is perfectly fine and like i gotta say if this winds up working and is actually a good long-term solution, like I eat my hat. Like I was totally mm-hmm. wrong about whether or not this was going to work. And it looks like it's working great. It's actually a really cool thing to be wrong about. Well, you have to remind me, why didn't you think it would work? Because no one else has ever done it. Everybody else has spent so much money building traditional flame trenches. And I figured like somebody's thought of this before. And, you know, we use... We use like the lead and frost effect, like that's, you know, a a layer of steam to protect things in a lot of other places, including inside rocket engines. Uh, But it just, it seemed like it was too much thrust from too big of a rocket, too close to the pad for, you know, a shower head to to do anything. It just didn't seem, didn't seem feasible to me. Yeah. Chubby in the chat says it sounded like an idea that Elon might've thought up while stoned. And I totally agree. That's exactly what it sounded like. Like, yeah, you know, sure. Water in theory can do this. And we've had water cooled flame trenches, but they were still trenches. Like the angle was like a big deal. So I think pretty cool. Yeah. I also really like how you can hear the, the crackle and you can see the flicker in the clouds um, from the, the acoustic saturation or whatever it's called. That's a very cool event at the top of the show. And in fact, I was going to bring up the fact that Rocket Lab flew a reusable first stage with a previously used engine. Not the whole stage, but, you know, that's a small step. They are reusing a single engine. Yeah, that's a big so deal. That's kind I of like neat. That. <laughs> yeah. So this is one that I guess they recovered from a booster. I mean, like, obviously, a booster that had been recovered. And now this booster itself that is launching for the first time should also hopefully be recovered so they're you know taking those little steps uh it's it's just nice to see that kind of progress being made by a company that's not spacex exactly Okay, so Chandrayaan-3 landed. Uh, Yay, this is now the fourth nation to have put something on the surface of the moon successfully, right? So we have the United States, Russia, the former Soviet Union, I should say, uh, China, and now India. And the first uh, polar region landing, too. Yeah, like pretty far. I mean, this is, I guess, I don't know how you... Well, I guess, yeah, you would define the polar region as any part of the moon that's in constant sunlight. Is that right? I actually don't remember how you do it on the moon. but Yeah, ju- no, just just like the just like the Earth. It's the... Just like on Earth. The yeah. Arctic yeah. and Antarctic circles are basically the high enough latitudes that you could get 24 hours of get. sunlight in principle. Right. Yeah. 
or or 24 hours of darkness conversely <laughs> so yeah this was a successful landing um i'm very happy to see this um because they had you know like obviously chandrayaan one and two um which were really honestly useful and i think in many ways led to the success of this one because uh they had learned a lot those first two times and um and this is also good to see just because we had you know just discussed luna 25 which didn't do quite as well and uh and there are some other upcoming lunar landings schedule so it's like a busy time this like this year for putting things on the moon you know mm. it's like I'm, I'm kind of starting to realize just how much stuff is headed for the moon mm-hmm. just over the course of the next six months or so lunar mm. landing season in fact is there any reason for that i mean i'm sure that there's not because the moon is just always there but it seems weird that it's all happening kind of in a kind of bunched up fashion yeah like i mean the it's a couple months it's got a little bit to do with uh orbital dynamics like there are you know, windows to the moon, just like there are windows to Mars. You can overcome uh, a disadvantageous window to the moon with, you know, some extra extra weight-saving measures or paying for a bigger rocket or something. Um, but yeah, if you, if you have your choice, you're going to optimize everything. And uh, so you get like one major window once a month, and then you get over the year, you get a slight advantage on, you know, a group of months you know, at the end of the year or the beginning of the year, like whatever the timing is, that's much less important than just flying at the right time of month. But um, yeah, one of the one of the cool things about Apollo is like looking at the scheduling discussions that they had because they're like, look, we can launch now, but we'd rather launch next month because of this and that. And, you know, they kind of figure out, OK, well, how can we how does that affect all the other missions after that? And it's kind of cool. Yeah, pretty sure. I, I think maybe, Ben, that was a twist if you had done at one point where you kind of got into the nitty-gritty oh. about that. It was pretty fun. Yeah, it's it's a fun topic. So um, Chandrayaan-3 launched in on uh, July 14th, a little over a month ago. Um, and they you know had to do a series of burns to kind of you know get out to the moon for their uh, translunar injection. And there were, as I'm counting them, uh, the initial launch and the initial orbit, then five more burns. And, of course, these were all perigee burns uh, to get to an orbit of two. 236 kilometers by um, 127,603 kilometers. So that was the last orbit before the translunar injection uh, to 288 kilometers by 369,328. Then there was the lunar orbit injection and then um, four more maneuvers to kind of lower the orbit from a highly eccentric orbit down to 153 kilometers by 163. Then there were two deorbit maneuvers to get from that down to 25 kilometers by 134 kilometers. Um, and that last one was a, looks like a 60 second burn time. So that was the last one to get down to that, you know, 25 kilometer perigee or I guess perilune. Um, and then that's when they actually began their actual braking maneuvers. But yeah, so the sequence of events is, yeah, it launched in uh, July. And then on August 17th, it did a separation. So you had the Vikram landers separate from the, what's it called? Not service module, although that is what Propul- it is. Propulsion module. Propulsion yeah, yeah. module. There you go. I always forget propulsion module. <laughs> on the 23rd, which was just uh, four days ago, um, it began the braking maneuver. And like I said, it got itself down to a pretty low altitude. And um, that began at 30 kilometers, that braking maneuver. It held that altitude for 11 and a half minutes. And then once it got down to 7.2 kilometers, it began to actually reorient itself so that it was no longer braking, but instead preparing for a landing. And this is all stuff that, you know, this time it obviously went according to plan. Uh, Last time, not so much. Uh, They did, you know, have some problems during this sequence or during this portion of uh, the landing. So uh, that's the part where 
or they like really learned something. They fixed the software error, which as I'm saying it now, I don't remember exactly what it was. We've talked about so many with so many different nations. It's, you know, this is, a, this is where things, you know, tend to go wrong. It's in, you know, these last couple minutes. But yeah, and then uh, it comes down on two of the four engines. So it has four engines, uh, just reignites two of those, and it hovered at 150 meters for 30 seconds. And this was to determine a landing spot, which I think is really cool. So it really was able to pick out and target exactly where it was going to set down. I don't know if this is something that it had done the previous mission on Chandrayaan 2. I don't know if it made it quite that far. Made it as far as... Yeah, no, I think it was it was still kind of sideways and was was it tumbling too? Didn't, I think so. It? Yeah, yeah. I think it did not get to that vertical orientation, but I might be thinking of some other lander. Well, was it was it Chandrayaan two or another one that? Oh, it, oh no, I'm bear thinking sheet of turned off. I'm thinking a bear sheet where it's like I'm good. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Chandrayaan two was uh, tumbled and crashed. Because they, because they, I, if I remember correctly, they even showed on like the little graphic at like the mission control center the spacecraft's orientation changing. Yeah, it said that they had some problems with the. Um, well, there were several problems, and there was one that had to do with uh, the throttling of the main engine. They had some coarse throttling issues, uh, so mm-hmm. as well as some wrong computations on the remaining flight time. And th- and that's also right, uh, part of the reason why they wanted to have two engines on the lander this time. To provide, I guess, a little more, if not just redundancy, but uh, control over their landing. Yeah, I believe so. And uh, yeah, and yeah, there were a couple of uh, modifications they had made to both the lander and the rover. So it touched down between the Manzinus Sea and Sempelius N crater. I, I don't know what these number or these letters designate. Are you familiar with these craters? I, I mean, there's obviously a gazillion of them on the moon. Um, and I don't know. I, I did know that there were letters that followed the names. I don't know if there's any significance or if they just kind of, you know, take the alphabet and you have like a bunch mm. of them in like a mm. specific region. So there's like a whole bunch of Manzinus craters and then there's A, B, C, and D, so on and so forth. Oh, it's satellite craters. So evidently, and this is new to me, I'm just going off of Wikipedia, um, right? Because as you can imagine, you know, your initial impact leads to secondary impacts or mm-hmm. perhaps the object broke up, although I doubt with an airless body like the moon that quite so happens. But there are chains on like Venus, things, uh, other worlds that have atmospheres. But yeah, so because there's all these satellite craters, assuming they're related to the inig- uh, original or even if they're not, one way or another, there are satellite craters and they're just given names. Or, uh, by, that are they're given labels. <laughs> they're labeled by letters where A would be the closest to the center of, or closest to Sempelius, and then the further out you go, you go later in the alphabet. So, for example, Manzinus goes up to U. Sempelius goes to P. It looks like. Like, and it makes sense that it would be between two craters like that, right? Because these would be much smaller craters. These would be like you know, like you said, Dennis, secondary craters that are you know kind of created by debris. So they wouldn't be nearly as large and they're trying to find, or the spacecraft is trying to find as flat a surface as possible. And so it's going to be somewhere as high up in the alphabet as you can get. (laughs) That's kind of the way I would think of it. Mm. Uh, Because as I understand it, the South Pole of the moon, and I don't know about the North Pole, but at least the Southern Polar region, heavily cratered. I don't know why that would be. There's, I'm sure, some interesting uh, things having to do with the formation of the moon, I'm not sure, but lots of craters in the polar regions, not as much in the plains in the equatorial region, if you can call them plains or, or you know, seas. I mean, that might be, I mean, it's not, I guess, a real answer, but it seems like the Maria are related to being along the Earth-Moon line. And so just the fact that the polar regions are not really, they're far away from the Earth-Moon line or the sub-Earth point 
so they're I don't, more I don't think it has to do with the Earth. I think it's just the spin of the moon, right? That if one side wound up with the Maria, that that would be the side that would wind up well, along no, the Earth more moon that, more that as the moon is spinning on its axis, it's exerting centripetal, imparting centripetal motion to the core. And so the core is more like, I mean, just like as an oblate spheroid, like it bulges out at the equator. That's also where you would expect to see more volcanic activity, right? Yeah, but there's no, yeah, right. So, but there's no volcanic, more volcanic activity on the far side, the anti-Earth point. That's the far side. It's all kind of- I was just thinking, yeah, pole pole versus equator, but that's true. There's also near and far. I I think that's got to just be a a coincidence, right? Like one side happened to have more, and then it happened to be the one that was pointing at the earth. You think? I'm not sure. I think it's something that people are still researching. I wish I paid more attention last time I spoke to somebody about it. Because, yeah, I mean, the, the other astronomer we hired at my college is a- Like, I remember him explaining it to me, but like, I think- he was just saying, my my vague recollection is that it's still being researched exactly why you would end up with this uh, asymmetric volcanism, and it's it's pretty suggestive that you know well you do have a big old Earth you know kind of that has torqued the Moon into having you know one side you know basically being tidally locked, and that is the side where you had all this. Um, yeah, so this touchdown occurred on the lunar near side, and like I said, at the polar region, approximately 71 degrees south by uh, 22 degrees east, which is, you know, on the side that faces the Earth. So this is the Earth-facing southern region. Um, and it was at the very beginning of the lunar day. I don't know if that means, I guess that means from our point of view, more or less a new moon, depending on exactly where that longitude is. Uh, yes, not not sure about noon. I'm not sure either. I actually don't know. It, it like it all just depends on where it landed. Well, yeah, exactly. From our point and, of view. Yeah, and 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 in fact, I, I, in a sense, you can you can be sure that a new moon from our perspective, if it's on the near side, is something we actually could rule out because that would mean the Terminator is you know <laughs> ninety degrees to the left or ninety degrees to the right. So <laughs> good point. Yeah. Yeah, I just think of it as, as the Terminator sweeps around, you you make it so you land so that the Terminator has just the lit part has just reached you. But this is in order to maximize how long the lander and rover have in sunlight uh, because that is the expected lifetime of the vehicle. So they get about 14 days and then that's it because they are both solar powered. So not something with any kind of a battery, um, which is a big difference between these landers and the Luna 25, which was expected to operate for, I think, up to a year or more. Mm. Um, so, but this is this is just a 14-day mission. Now, the propulsion module is expected to you know go on for at least several years, so they do have that. But of course, you know, that's because that just remains in orbit. But once uh, these are in lunar night on the lunar surface, that's it. Uh, and then also this crater or this next to these small craters location, uh, it, it was named Shiv Shakti, which apparently is named after a couple of Hindu gods, uh, Shiva and Shakti or something close to that. I don't know if that's um, some like modification of a name. Um, but yeah, no, Shiv no, Shakti. Sh- Sh- Shiva and Shakti mm-hmm. are like two, two of the big ones. But yeah, but it's, it's not Shiva Shakti, it's Shiv Shakti. And I just didn't know uh, if Shakti was different uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, 
my guess is that they'd be the, the same. But um, yeah, and so the Vikram Lander and the Pragyan Rover, uh, like I said, both of them are solar powered. They both just have about 14 days of life. The Lander, one interesting fact I read on the India Times, I think was the name of the website. I don't quite remember. There have been a couple modifications between Chandrayaan 3 and the previous one. And one big one that they made was they actually strengthened the landing legs of the Vikram Lander so that it could withstand a three meter per second landing, which is a little over 10 miles an hour, um, which is actually quite fast when you think about just imagine 10 miles an hour, uh, how quick that is. Um, that's a decent impact with the moon. And I can only imagine if that happened, it might bounce a little bit and then tip onto its side. Do you think it would stay vertical? I'm not so sure. Um, <laughs> so that would be a worst case scenario, but it would still be operational. I mean, it would still survive that landing. And this lander also carries more fuel. And I think this was just because they really wanted to make sure during that landing sequence that uh. they got a good landing position. That's why it was able to maintain that position before it actually began the final descent. Um, and there are four solar panels on each side of the Vikram lander um, instead of two, like with the previous one. And this is in case it touches down in the quote unquote wrong direction. And it might also tumble over in which case, I guess it would have still two solar panels just in a different orientation uh, facing the sun. So that's that's interesting. The previous Chandrayaan-2 lander, when landing, had to make sure that not only that it landed in a specific spot, but that it came down like in a very specific orientation so that it was facing the sun. And so I guess those two solar panels were on two adjacent sides to make the most of uh, the solar energy that you'd be getting. Of course, the position of the sun would be changing. So I guess, I don't know. But yeah, anyway... Hmm. Uh, <laughs> But that's kind of, that's kind of interesting. So um, I think the addition of two other solar panels was a good idea because I don't think that's something that you, should, that you would really want to worry about, you know. And that's a pretty easy problem to resolve. Just put two extra solar panels on there. Um, and of course, it does add a little bit of weight, but uh, yeah, good modification. The scientific payloads on board the lander were the Chandra's surface. Thermophysical experiment or chaste or chast. Um, and this measures uh, the thermal conductivity and temperatures at the lunar surface, which I guess is something that would really be useful at the southern polar region, um, just to you know get an idea right. of uh, what that's like. And then there's also uh, the instrument for lunar seismic activity, which is called ILSA, that just measures seismic activity around the landing site. And so the last uh, scientific payload on the lander was the Langmuir probe. I don't know how to say that. Is it Langmuir? Or Langmuir. I was just fire from the hip, Langmuir. <laughs> but Lang, yeah, the Langmuir probe, uh, and this estimates the near-surface plasma density over time. And uh, so, I guess there's some very tenuous amounts of plasma, I guess, on the lunar surface. Um, I guess just stuff coming off the sun, right? I guess that would be about it. Yeah. So that's actually a a literal name. A Langmuir is a unit of exposure or dosage to a surface e.g. of a crystal that is used in a uh, ultra-high vacuum surface physics to study the absorption of gases. So it's Wikipedia. I'm reading it quickly. I don't 100% know. But I mean, if it has to do with plasma density and this has to do with adsorption in high vacuum, yeah, it sounds like that's actually mm -hmm. like returning uh, values in units of Langmuir's. Yeah, named after a uh, the Nobel Prize winner in chemistry in 1932. Okay. Yeah, I figured it was a unit of measurement, and I knew it was named after someone because that's a name. Yeah, mm -hmm. you don't you don't come out, but you, yeah, you don't come out with a name like that for nothing. <laughs> <It's> kinda... <laughs> 
And so, yeah, moving on to the Pragyan rover. Um, this is, you know, a small rover by comparison to, I suppose, other ones that are on Mars right now. Um, it is just a little 26-kilogram rover, um, and it's expected to cover 500 meters. So over the course of the next 14 days, uh, that's about how much territory it's going to cover. It has a little solar panel that kind of sticks up off the back. We were joking about how it kind of looks like a dimetrodon. And then mm-hmm. on top of that panel is the uh, communication antenna. This has two scientific payloads. It has the alpha particle X-ray spectrometer, uh, or apexis, I guess. This drives chemical compositions and infers uh, the mineral composition of the surface. And then it has a, another payload that's kind of similar, uh, the laser-induced breakdown spectroscope. Um, and this determines the element composition of the soil in rocks. So basically finding out exactly what elements make up the chemicals within those rocks. Well, I don't know if that's a good way of putting it. Because if you know a chemical, right, you kind of know the element. Yeah, I mean, just chemicals includes things that are, you know, m- multiple elements bonded together. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you but if you know those chemicals, you know the elements. Sure. But yeah, you, you don't talk about, you know, I want to study the elements of water. Oh, I suppose I see what you're saying, right? And yeah. If you wanted to study hydrogen. But I mean yeah. but I I just don't see why you would need the laser induced breakdown spectroscope when you got the first one, the alpha particle well, X ray spectroscope. Yeah, so X ray X ray spectroscopy is is hard and is not conclusive. Um, like you can run a spectrograph of, you know, an unknown substance. And like, usually, usually when you're doing it, you're like, okay, well, this is like, I've done all these steps. This is one of two things. I want to know how much of one and how much of the other, or if I got, you know, to confirm that I got to the chemical that I wanted to get to. And so in that case, like, you know, exactly what you would expect in all of the possible situations. But like, if you were starting with, you know, a totally unknown substance, you're not going to be able to tell a hundred percent, you know, based on those peaks, you can get close, but like, it's, it's never going to be exact. So by shooting things with a laser and then doing uh, spectroscopy, uh, on the resulting gas, you do get very definitive answers, but it's on an elemental scale. You know how many of these elements, not what order they were in before. So by using both of those two, you can get really good. You can kind of narrow down into um, the most likely options and, and add some certainty to your measurements. And I suppose the explanation is right there in the description. This actually derives chemical composition, right? And then it infers the mineral composition. So kind of like you were saying. Yeah. So, sorry. I was I was hunting for a, uh, a GIF of uh, mm-hmm. the <laughs> rover being deployed. So I wasn't really listening. I had missed what you were saying and then just suddenly heard, what's the difference between chemicals? Like, you know, why would you talk about chemicals versus elements in this context? But, but I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's also worth saying, right? I mean, certainly... Perseverance, I know, has uh, the the laser induced spec- breakdown spectrometer, and I'm and I know Curiosity definitely had an AP, uh, alpha particle X ray spectrometer. I don't know if Perseverance has both, but like they're yeah they're like Ben was getting at really they're they're complementary. They don't you don't get everything from one and nothing new from the other. But congratulations, man! In India has absolutely been killing it. <laughs> yeah, they really have. So like the coincidence, not causation, like yada yada. But like the fact that Russia just crashed a lunar lander tells us how hard landing on the moon is. Um, and, you know, you can also add inferences about engineering expertise and that kind of thing uh, for particular countries. But like, this is a hard thing to do. It's not just Russia that's failed to do this. It's just Russia who's recently failed to do this after not doing it for 30 years, right? But to have that happen right before India comes in and lands and makes it look easy, it really highlights how good 
how good the the Indian Space Agency is and um, how prodigious they're being about the steps that they're taking. They're not throwing everything out all at once. They're going step by step and incrementing their way along. And it's exactly the way that a space program should work. Like it's really cool, mm-hmm. really satisfying. And it's all for the cost of, I think, a single Falcon 9 launch. Like yeah. This is a very cheap mission. I mean, they've done so much with so little. I mean, it's it's like sixty million dollars or something like that. Yep. And we and and they also have more interesting stuff happening in their program, uh, in particular the Gaganyan uh, crewed uh, program that they're working towards. They've got a uh, whether it's this week or in the future, they've got an abort uh, motor test coming up. And so they're like you're saying, incrementally working their way towards being able to put their own humans on orbit. Today we have with us IEEE senior member David Witkowski. Uh, hi, David. How's it going? It's going very well. Thanks. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, coffee kicked in about five minutes ago. So, nice. um, so uh, I could try to introduce uh, your expertise, but I think it'd be better for you to get it right the first time. So, David, who are you? What do you do? Um, why might we be interested in talking to you? Yeah, I'm David Witkowski. Uh, I work with the IEEE in a variety of capacities, um, one of which is as the uh, co-chair of the deployment working group for IEEE Future Networks. I also am a life member of the Microwave Theory and Technique Society. I'm a member of the International Committee on Electromagnetic Safety and um, the Committee on Man and Radiation. So primarily what I do in my day-to-day work is work on deployment of technology in the built environment. In other words, fiber, wireless, um, a lot of LEO work lately with satellite terminals coming online. And then I also do a lot of work with um, the questions of electromagnetic safety in the human environment. So sometimes people have concerns about, you know, is 5G dangerous? Uh, We do work on that as well. Uh, Kind of focus on the intersection between local governments and private industry seems to be the area that needs the most help these days. You already mentioned um, LEO broadband is is particularly what I'm interested in. we like everybody understands the the benefits of Leo broadband. Like potentially, uh, there's all of this uh, democratizing and access equalizing kind of benefit. So I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what happens when there's differing access to the internet, like between different populations of the world. Um, and what causes that differing access? This is a very terrestrial question on a space show, but I think it's a good place to start. Well, it's a great way to start because certainly I think space-based broadband is addressing a lot of challenges in the terrestrial world. Of course, that's where the users are. So as we have seen over the years, there's been a lot of effort to do space-based broadband. Um, you know, we remember Iridium and Global Star and Aloha Networks, uh, a lot of opportunities, I think, to do something in that environment. But the challenge has been, I think, just that the technology wasn't really there uh, as Moore's Law has allowed us to do better semiconductors um, as we've developed technologies and opened up spectrum. I think space is becoming more viable for delivery of broadband. And of course, the obvious 
answer to this, uh, I would say the most successful has been Starlink, uh, but then there has also been um, AST Space. I was just on a panel this week with uh, a woman from Project Kuiper, uh, which is Amazon's entry into the LEO satellite broadband space. And so we see a lot of interest in doing this, um, mostly I would say in the rural environment, because that's where the challenges are. Most terrestrial broadband providers don't really want, well, it's not that they don't want to, it's just that it's expensive to deliver broadband in a rural environment. So space makes a lot of sense because you don't have that challenge of building out miles and miles of fiber to serve a community that's you know way out in rural, unincorporated areas. Uh, so, I, so I think that there is a lot of interest in that. And of course, that's where we're seeing a lot of the uptake. There is some urban uptake as well, uh, just because there may be locations where broadband, for whatever reason, was not uh, installed, or there may be challenges in getting it installed in, in those urban environments. But mostly, it's been a rural solution. So I, I ran across an interesting article when I was looking into uh, unequal access to the internet. And it was kind of shocking. They had a map of LA. They had three maps of LA. Um, one was showing the percentage of the population that was uh, black or Hispanic. Uh, one, one like heat map that was showing areas um, that were uh, low versus high income. And then the third one was areas that uh, the percentage of households that didn't have any internet access and like the three aligned really well. Um, you, you mentioned like rural broadband, like that's definitely like a, a physical challenge. Um, but I often hear Leo broadband discussed as this way to get everybody on the internet is, is it good for people uh, in the city who um, don't have access to the internet for systemic reasons. Like, are the are the prices something that you see coming down to the point where it actually becomes accessible for everybody? And is that like is this an important tool? And does it matter if it's an important tool? Certainly, there are environments in the urban world where you would need a different solution than you would find with, say, a wired network. Uh, one of the things that has been the case in terrestrial networks in socioeconomically challenged neighborhoods is the fact that the infrastructure, the wiring in that area is often substandard. Um, We have to remember that the broadband that we enjoy today is built upon wires that were intended for other purposes. Uh, You know, we, for those of us who are older, well, we remember dial-up modems, which of course was a repurposing of the wires that were used for telephones, um, we then figured out that we could run a certain amount of broadband down those wires uh, for DSL. But DSL has an upper limit on a per, what we call a pair basis, just below 50 megabits per second. So if you have what's called a, and I'll use some engineering terms here, a double bonded pair, you can deliver up to 100 megabits, but typically somewhat below that in practice to a residence or a business. And, and 100 megabits may be sufficient for some uses. Certainly the federal government current definition, state of California, for example, they, they define broadband as 100 megabits down and 200, or sorry, 20 megabits up. Um, but copper infrastructure also for cable television was repurposed for broadband purposes. 
In fact, I was talking to, this week at a conference to the president of uh, Cal Broadband, which used to be known as uh, effectively like the cable. They were they, they had cable in their name, and they rebranded themselves because they they were. It's not really about cable TV anymore. It's about broadband. And so, but in the built environment, in socioeconomically challenged neighborhoods, that wiring can be old uh, and it can be hard to use for broadband just because of the physical state of it. Now, you could bring in fiber, which is the solution in many areas, but fiber is expensive. Um, you know, on, on average, I think the Department of Transportation, the federal government, of the United States estimated that it's $120,000 per built mile of fiber on average. And it ranges down, you know, maybe $40,000 above and below that, depending upon where you are. But but that's a that's a pretty significant investment. Uh, then you have to not only wire to the neighborhood, but then you have to wire to the homes themselves. And so there's a an investment there that needs to be made. And I would, um, you know, I'd argue that we're doing reasonably well at making that investment, um, but it is a it is effectively a rewiring of the network. And so we're we had started from ground zero some years ago, and and we're working our way out. Satellite could short circuit that it could bring broadband directly to a residence without requiring that that hundred and twenty five thousand dollar per linear mile investment. And that that I think is where the opportunity for satellite in urban areas really lies. To your point, though, it's expensive. The equipment is expensive. The service is expensive. Over time, that'll come down. Uh, but right now, it is probably out of reach for most people that are in those circumstances that we've described. Do, do you think of, or do you and people in the industry think of satellite broadband once it you know really matures and the price comes down and you know kind of hits its stride as something that would you know, fully displace, you yeah. know, something like fiber, uh, kind of like how, you know, Betamax was fully displaced or that there would still be co <laughs> yeah, right. complementary uh, yes. usages for each of them. I would argue that it it would not. Uh, and for for a couple reasons, one of which is, is that fiber does a really good job of delivering broadband in a very stable way, whereas satellite is affected by things in the environment. For example, if you get a really heavy rainstorm, um, it, it reminds me of the early days of satellite television when, and I had a, my first business um, after I served in the military was building those big 10 and 12 foot wide dishes that people were using for TV back in the 80s. And uh, we, we, did a, we did a good business installing those for high-value clients in Northern California that that wanted TV and couldn't get cable. Um, but we would get complaints during the winter when the rainstorms would come through and people would call and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm watching the football game and it's all staticky. Well, yeah, there's a storm passing over you, right? Once the weather clears up, your picture will clear up. Um, there's also a challenge in space that it is ameliorated a bit by the density of the constellation. But, you know, there's a certain uh, upload capacity for the satellite, for any given satellite. And it has to do with, with what's known as uh, the contention on the receiver, meaning that, a, you know, the, the way to think about uplink contention in a satellite constellation is imagine that you were standing in front of a room full of reporters and you announced something really stunning, like you had made contact with an alien species. And you can imagine the number of reporters that would start yelling questions at you. 
And you would have to figure out like, okay, who do I, first of all, can I even hear the questions? And second of all, if I could hear a question, who would I pick first? A satellite is like that. It, it hears a lot of terminals on the ground simultaneously, and it has to manage that contention of, of figuring out how to serve all those terminals. So there's, a, there's an engineering upper limit to how many terminals a satellite can receive simultaneously. And that's why, you know, we, we see companies like Starlink saying that the certain areas, they won't activate more terminals because the cell is basically full at that point. Mm. They, they have so many terminals in that area that they can't serve anymore. Uh, if you bring a terminal in from another location, now you're beginning to overload the receive subsystem on that satellite. So wh why am I saying this? Um, you know, in an urban environment, there are just simply too many users to be served by a satellite. Uh, rural is a good environment for satellite because there are typically fewer users in a rural uh, terrestrial cell. But that being said, I, I think you serve those urban environments with fiber and you would serve the rural with satellite or, or other technologies. Uh, wireless ISP, for example, 5G fixed wireless has become somewhat of a solution for some areas. So I see satellite as part of the overall solution, but I don't see it as the, the go-to ultimately displacing everything else solution. So in, in Wi-Fi, we have really kind of elegant and sophisticated collision avoidance uh, tactics that we can use. Uh, what is What does that look like talking to a satellite? Like what are the, I, I guess if you could tell us a little bit about um, collision avoidance for, you know, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and that kind of thing. Um, and is that different than uh, talking to a satellite and and dealing with, you know, listening to a bunch of different senders? So in it's important that we clarify that Wi-Fi is, in fact, um, a collision detection uh, system as opposed to a collision avoidance. If, if we liken that to the wired networks, you know, Wi-Fi is more like Ethernet in that regard in that it, it detects issues and then will retransmit. Um, a collision avoidance system would be like, I'm going to use a very antiquated term, token ring, if we remember token ring. Uh, the wireless version of token ring was WiMAX, or I should say is WiMAX, uh, the, I, the IEEE 802.16 standard. Um, but the IEEE 802.11 is based upon collision detection. And so in the satellite environment, there is that what we would refer to as a near-far problem, meaning that two terminals could start transmitting simultaneously, even to ask for a channel uh, and or, or a time slot. And then the satellite could hear requests for that transmission simultaneously and would have to arbitrate between them. So it would say, okay, I, I hear two terminals, terminal A, go ahead, and then terminal B, go ahead. But you still have that initial query for capacity that you have to manage. Now multiply that by thousands or tens of thousands of terminals and, and you begin to see that there's really no way to do collision avoidance. You can you can do collision avoidance after you've received requests for transmission, but you can't do collision avoidance on the request for transmission. So there's always going to be that that collision detection and mitigation issue. I kind of thought that one of the advantages of a wired network was that you could do collision detection and like at least know that it had happened and that with wireless networking, a lot of the time you couldn't tell that there was a collision, uh, or at least you couldn't recover any data 
after the collision to be able to say, hey, uh, you, you are A, you, you are B, A, go ahead, B, wait your turn. Um, what I guess, can you bring me up to date? Like what in the modern day, how do we do that? Well, if you detect a collision, then it's usually done with some sort of uh, acknowledgement. So if if I, as a wireless client or a wired client for that matter, if I, if I transmit um, on a Wi-Fi system, and there's a collision, the, the network will not acknowledge that or it will. And so when I don't get it as a, as the client, if I don't get the acknowledgement, then I, I back off for a period of time. It's a randomized number. Mm-hmm. Uh, in right. The, so you don't have. And yeah. Exactly. I mean, well, and you hope that you hope that by randomizing the retransmission time that you will uh, deconflict at least some of that. So you begin sorting it out just by saying, okay, if I don't hear anything back from the access point, I'm going to wait a, a period of time or a randomized period of time, and then I'll try again. And everyone else is randomized on their, uh, excuse me, everyone else is randomized on their, um, on their request. And so if it's sort of like take a number, right? Everyone pick a number between one and 10. Okay. Uh, I was thinking of seven, seven, go ahead. But, but that's not really the way that it works is it's just sort of seven, just talks because, because they got the shortest retransmission, uh, randomized number. And, and then now the others will, will say, okay, now the channel's busy. I'm going to wait until the channel's clear. But the moment that that channel becomes clear, everyone will then begin trying, trying to get in again. And so you go through this period of, okay, I'm going to hold off because I hear everybody talking. Now the channel's clear. Everyone raises their hand. And then you, you then arbitrate it that way. And then, so eventually you get to that point where you've worked through all of the and there's some more sophisticated algorithms that are used to, to try to democratize this and make it more fair. But, but that being said, there's, there's always going to be that request for capacity or request for attention, contention issue that you have to deal with in, in Wi-Fi. And, and satellite is basically the same thing. Do, do we use the same techniques? I mean, I, I know that the answer really is no, there's no you know, Wi-Fi satellite, right? Like we're talking about totally different technologies, but like, are the strategies the same? There are there are similarities between the strategies, but of course, in a satellite environment, you deal with other things like um, you deal with link uh, link loss or path loss. Uh, you you deal with uh, you know scintillation loss. There's a few other physical mechanisms that can cause the signal to vary. So you have to manage around that. Um, you've you know you've got to confirm the You've got to confirm the uh, data that has been received in an, in an intact manner. So there's a certain amount of, did you get that? Yeah, I got most of it. Can you please send packet number seven again? Uh, but then as you work through that, you know, it becomes uh, it becomes a little bit more complex. And, and also then you have a certain amount of time delay. But it's, it's really the biggest challenge I think that satellite has faced. And I mentioned earlier those other systems like Iridium, Global Star, Aloha networks, you know, they they all struggled to overcome the uh, the contention problem. But but of course they were you know, there were older systems, the semiconductors and the receiver subsystems in that were not as sophisticated as we, as we have in today's world. So that's really where I talked about how Moore's law has finally gotten us to the point where satellite can work. Uh, so uh, going back to to internet and solutions for internet, uh, I found a uh, I guess it's a, a paper called uh, the public Wi-Fi blueprint uh, that you're a co-editor of. Um, and it's sort of like a, a how-to guide for municipal Wi-Fi. 
Could you give us some highlights about uh, about how municipalities or big organizations should implement public Wi-Fi networks? Yeah, thank you. That was uh, actually a work that we did through the Global City Teams Challenge, which was part of mm. the – it was a – an industry partnership that was run out of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST. Uh, and that was um, that was a very interesting project. Uh, we had, um, as one of my co, you know, one of my co-authors on that was uh, the chief information officer uh, now for one of the biggest cities in California. Uh, and so we we really looked at that in an environment where we were not only looking at the technology, but we we had people who were working for local governments and had deployed Wi-Fi in a municipal context. And so I think that paper was well informed by practicalities of both the technological challenges, but also the sociological and even political challenges that come along with deployment. Public Wi-Fi is, I think, a useful thing for cities to do. It is, I think, not necessarily the best technology to deliver broadband to, for example, homes. And just because Wi-Fi is a somewhat low power technology, it doesn't often penetrate walls of homes very well. Um, you know, you've probably experienced this in the opposite where you've gone outside of your home and maybe you're working in your yard and you know, your Wi-Fi may not work so well out in your yard. Um, and so unless you place an access point somewhere near a window, you're probably going to struggle to receive a decent signal, but it works very well within the walls of your home because the walls reduce the signal down to the point where it can be unusable in the opposite sense, as cities deploy Wi-Fi, uh, residents tend to complain that it doesn't work well inside their home unless they use some sort of a repeater, which means more equipment. That has to be deployed. You know, you never get all your equipment back in in situations where you're handing out equipment to residents. There's always going to be a certain amount of damage or just loss as people move and they forget to give you your terminal back and you never. So as you find that there are other technologies which I think serve home users better. You know, city of San Jose, California is probably the city that has learned this the the most because they decided to use Wi-Fi for their digital inclusion program where they built public Wi-Fi networks in socioeconomically disadvantaged areas of San Jose. We, you talked about LA, you know, this is, San Jose has a, a side of town that is similar to the, sort of the east side of LA in, in that it is an area that has a lot of issues um, socioeconomically, but they are finding that that network does not serve indoors very well, which means, okay, if your child needs to do homework, they can go sit on the porch, but you may not want them sitting on the porch at 11 o'clock at night, and, and especially in a neighborhood that may be dealing with some crime issues. And so it's Wi-Fi is useful, uh, but I don't know that it is the best solution for delivering a true broadband experience to a wide variety of users. There are other technologies that I think are better for that. Are there any protocols or uh, techniques that are important that we haven't talked about yet? Well, there are a few that I've I've been working with uh, in the past year or two that I think are very interesting. Um, one of which is the use of Wi-Fi networks in a different uh, environment for authentication using a technology called Hotspot 2.0. The real value of Hotspot 2.0 is that it is Wi-Fi, but the experience is managed by the network and, and is actually, in, in the case of some of the Hotspot 2.0 uh, 
technologies are they're authenticated by carriers. So think about your experience. And this was one of the things that we wrote in the public Wi-Fi blueprint. You know, how do you get onto a public Wi-Fi? Well, you know, you, you either log in and then there's there's no password, in which case it's an unencrypted connection, which for security reasons may be challenging and maybe ill-advised, or you go hunting for a password and, and maybe you go and post QR codes or passwords on the walls of, of various places in, in the in the civic environment where you could say, okay, the password for the downtown Wi-Fi is, you know, welcome to San Jose. But then you have the problem of you then have to deliberately log into that network. What Hotspot 2.0 does is it provides the ability to do offload to the Wi-Fi based upon whether or not your cellular carrier is willing to offload to that network. And so what happens is that when you're in the downtown area, and I talked about that network, that we do a lot of connections onto, that's actually a Hotspot 2.0 network. Um, those are cellular customers for uh, you know, a couple of the carriers in the United States. Um, AT&T and T-Mobile are, are the primary ones. Verizon hasn't come online to, to Wi-Fi offload yet, but I suspect they will in the short term. But those are AT&T and T-Mobile customers who are just simply using Wi-Fi in lieu of the cellular network because it because it's providing a reasonable connection. So I see Hotspot 2.0 and, off, and Wi-Fi offload is fairly interesting. The thing that's great about it is that it's encrypted and it's a completely zero touch experience for the user. The, the users don't even know that they're offloading. They just attach to the network if the signal is good enough and the carrier is willing to say, okay, we'll offload to that network. Uh, I see 5G fixed wireless as an early success story for the 5G network. Uh, you know, there's been some criticism that 5G hasn't been really meeting the expectations, but it is still really early. Uh, we are seeing, for example, 5G Home is an offering from the carriers, and that is providing a pretty good experience. I was at a conference this week. The Wi-Fi at the hotel was pretty bad, but I was getting almost 300 megabits per second on a 5G connection at the hotel. So I just hotspotted my phone for the duration of the conference. And that that was my broadband. I didn't even bother. I, I tried the hotel Wi-Fi. It wasn't very good. So I, I decided to not use it. And so, I mean, 300 megabits is a really good for a, for a wireless connection. And, and so I do see that as the new C-band comes online, in the 5G environment, we are beginning to see those like 100 megabit, 300 megabit connections that I think are going to be competing with broadband solutions for in the wired environment. Uh, the other thing that I see coming online is there's a lot more wireless ISP. Um, technologies like CBRS are starting to find their home in connectivity. CBRS, uh, we use that in Santa Clara County for the Department of Education of the County Office of Education. And we were, during the pandemic, we were building CBRS connections for students in their homes who, who had been sent home during the pandemic, but they need they did not have connections. And so we were handing out CBRS terminals, which were then converting the Wi-Fi. And that, and a school-issued Chromebook, gave them the ability to be in school. Uh, and we just installed those CBRS nodes on top of elementary schools in the neighborhoods. And, and that actually turned out to be a really viable way of delivering broadband uh, to, to students. There were some engineering challenges in making that happen, but in general, I'd say most of the students that we issued terminals to found the experience to be very 
positive and, and useful. Um, could you talk a little bit more about CBRS like uh, as a technology? Um, I've heard about it, but I don't know like how it actually uh, gets data to the terminal. So CBRS is effectively uh, no different than like LTE from the 4G environment. And then at some point, we'll have uh, what's called new radio NR, which is the 5G technology. Uh, there's there's no difference between CBRS and LTE or NR. It, it is a it is a derivation of the 3GPP technologies that are used for 4G and 5G. Um, the difference is how the frequencies get managed and allocated. So in an LTE or NR, I should say 4G and 5G network, the carriers bid on spectrum, which is then awarded to them based upon how much they bid for that technology. They're then given either regional or nationwide licenses for for that um, technology, and they put up towers and they serve people, and that's their spectrum. In CBRS, the spectrum is shared by all of the users, and in fact, is shared by not only commercial users, but government users and individuals or, or private. So it's a it's a very interesting licensing paradigm for the technology because you can have what are called incumbents, which are the government. So this is effectively a spectrum that the government uses for aircraft carrier landing radar. Now, you know, you'd say, okay, that's um, when you ask the government, like, can we use your spectrum? Of course, the answer mm -hmm. first right away is no. But then you kind of work <laughs> through it and go, okay, well, how often do you really need aircraft landing radar in Kansas? Be honest, right? And they go, well, yeah, you're probably right. Okay, fine. Well, could we come up with a system that would allow us to use the the that spectrum in cases where your aircraft carriers are not in the area, right? So what happens is that if there are no aircraft carriers in, say, for example, San Francisco Bay, then for the duration of the time that the aircraft carrier is not there, then everyone around the bay can use that spectrum. And it's done via a spectrum access system or a SAS. And the way that CBRS works is, is really interesting. A SAS has to be able to communicate or rather a CBRS access point has to be able to communicate with the SAS. So there has to be an, a pre-existing data connection. But because it's being fed by some form of broadband anyway, you presume that data connection is there. At about every four seconds, it, it goes back to the SAS and it asks the question, hey, am I still okay? SAS comes back and says, yes. Okay, great. I'm going to keep transmitting. If an aircraft carrier were to pull into San Francisco Bay, that query to the SAS would be, Am I still okay? And the SAS would say, no, you need to vacate this channel, move to channel, and they would give it a different channel. And then the system, the CBRS access point would then tell all users, hey, we're moving over to this other channel, follow me over there. And so what's interesting is, is that there's the government incumbent users. There are what are known as the, the priority users, the PAL, P-A-L licenses. And then there are the general tier, like the, the sort of the, the average person can use CBRS as well. And when you have that that tiering, like if, if nobody's using those PAL channels, then the general users can use them. If if somebody has licensed PAL and they've paid the government for that that those priority licenses, then the general tiers have to stay on their channels and they they move off. So it's a it's a dynamic spectrum allocation system 
that that is a has basically created a situa situation where the spectrum can be applied as is needed based upon who's who's there who's asking for channels if nobody's asking for channels then you can you can use more channels uh, if if it's very busy, then they say, okay, it's really busy. Everyone's got to stay in their lane. You know, you you're over here. The priority people are over here. The government is over here, and and so I think that that is a very interesting technology that is likely going to be coming online more in the in the near future, as as we begin to see people need a system that is better than Wi-Fi, um, but but maybe don't want to become a wireless carrier with all of the attendant challenges of building out a nationwide network on spectrum that they have to pay billions of dollars for. Uh, Chris in the chat is actually a, a commercial uh, airline pilot. And um, he asked, why was the 5G interference only an issue in U.S. airports operating in Canada and everywhere else in the world? It just wasn't an issue. That's a very good question, Chris. Um, that was actually something that I said and, and I'm not sure if Chris heard my interviews on that topic, but I, I did do some podcasts and did do some writing on this topic. And so, yes, the answer is that it was an issue in the United States because the FAA and the member companies of the airline industry made it an issue. To, to your point, there were 40 countries in the United in, around the world where commercial airline landed, including U.S. carriers landed every day going through 5G C-band um, systems that were not problematic. Uh, in, you know, for example, we talk about how in the United States, there's the argument that, well, the, the signal levels are higher than they are in other countries. Or, But the reality is, is that in, for example, Japan, they're actually closer in frequency. The United States has a 225 megahertz, what we call a guard band, effectively a, a a quiet zone or a dead zone between c band and the and the rattles so that 225 megahertz affords an awful lot of protection to the rattles whereas in japan i want to say it's like within 100 megahertz on and it's also above and below the rattle band so japan is deploying c band 5g in frequencies that are actually closer to rattle frequencies and and aircraft carrier or uh, aircraft, including U.S. carrier aircraft, land in the Japan every day without incident. So why was it an issue in the United States? Well, because the, I would argue that the industry and the FAA made it an issue. And I don't think that it should have been an issue from an engineering perspective. I don't think that there are problems with that. And in fact, when you look at what, for example, MITRE did with the Department of Defense, MITRE showed that there was no impact to military rattles. So the DOD avoided an enormous amount of retrofitting by simply testing to determine that, in fact, there was not a problem. The FAA approached this by using simulations, but those simulations were not actually done in the real world. Uh, they, they were not confirmed with, with, I'd say, real world testing. So there's this presumption that C-band 5G in the United States will impact adults, um, but I think they're being overly cautious in that regard. And, and of course, the I mean, we have a great safety record in the United States aviation industry. I mean, I can't remember the last time that we had um, a major airline incident in the U.S., and, and that's laudable, right? We, we do a great job of keeping passengers safe in the U.S., probably because we're extremely cautious, maybe overly cautious about things. But I, I can also say that, like in the past, the FAA 
when FM radio was first coming out, I remember reading an article that said that the FAA was against FM radio because it was, you know, going up to like 108 megahertz. Above that, of course, is the aviation band. And there was a concern that FM radio would impact aviation and that planes would not be able to communicate with the ground as they flew over FM transmitters. So I, I think there tends to be a, a very precautionary principle at the FAA. And maybe we could justify that by saying, we'll look at our safety record. But as you look at that in the real world, I, I think you come to the realization that that there aren't problems and that we can we can begin to relax a little bit that there's not a that there's not an impact. You were recently on the space show, which I haven't seen in a while, or I, I haven't listened to in a while. Um I don't think that there's a video version. But um towards the end of the interview you go into the servicing of spacecraft on orbit. And I was wondering if you, if you could talk about the state of the industry and maybe your perspective like coming from that world of comms, exactly how it will be impacted by that. Yeah, well I I think having been a tower climber at one time in my life, I, I am certainly familiar with the challenges of just getting terrestrial infrastructure serviced and repaired. Now, we don't have orbital vehicles that can go up and fix um, a satellite, right? We 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 no longer have a space shuttle. I, I remember when they did the um, when they when they put the contact lens on the Hubble, for example. I remember that was that was a kind of an interesting <laughs> thing. If they were going to do a service call on the Hubble, do you know that that is at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in DC? You can go see it. It's sitting in a room behind in in a Perspex box, and you can go look at it. It's right there. <laughs> That's I mean, unbelievable. It was, it, was a, it was a really I mean it was a really kind of a pinnacle of of our space program, and that we were able to actually go to orbit and fix something that that I think was was very. It was very cool. Uh, today we don't have uh, we don't have a reusable uh, vehicle, right? And and maybe that we will get that through commercialization of space, as as uh, SpaceX seems to be doing a really good job of keeping costs down, uh, getting us to the point where you know we can reuse launch vehicles and things like that. And and but certainly I I think as a as a country, and this is really sad to say, we we don't have that level of sophistication, we've kind of lost ground, I, I would say, in, in our space program. And, and it doesn't seem like we have a lot of interest in in doing that, um, which is sad because I, you know, I, I grew up, my my first aspiration was to be an astronaut. And so because I, I was young during the Apollo program, I, I got up to watch the moon landing, you know, early in the morning mm -hmm. in California. And I remember, uh, I have a distinct memory of sitting on the couch, uh, you know, with a blanket on, uh, drinking a cup of hot cocoa and watching Neil Armstrong mm -hmm. on the moon. <laughs> so, so I think it's sad that we've lost that ability. But that being said, I, I you know, you can't go to space, at least today, to fix a, a, a LEO satellite that's being used for broadband. And if it fails, it fails and, and hopefully you deorbit de it. And get it out of, uh, and not have it turn into space junk, and then you launch another one to replace it. It's a, it's a little bit of a um, sort of a more of a consumer. <laughs> I would call it a consumer mindset, but you know, we don't repair things anymore. We replace them, right? My toaster breaks. I don't fix my toaster. Well, okay, I fix my toaster. Most people don't fix their toasters, <laughs> but I'm, I'm old school, right? I fix things, but but for most people, they're just like, oh, my toaster's broken. I need to go buy a new toaster. Likewise, I think we have this notion that. Oh, the that's that uh, satellite broadband you know, that that uh, Starlink satellite is dead. Well, we'll just deorbit it, put up another one. It's just cheaper to do that than to try to go up and fix it. How do you see uh, on-orbit servicing 
moving? Like what, what direction is it going in? If we don't have a shuttle now, um, do you feel like we're going to have something that can fill this niche, uh, soonish? And if, if yes, soonish, will it be good enough? Uh, and if not, what, what can we do to change that? So I, I really question whether or not governments will ever be in that position again. Um, I think veering into somewhat political topics here, I, I think we have already an enormous amount of obligations to our citizens that are the commitments that have been made for for a variety of programs that that we will have to spend money on. And I'm speaking, of course, as the United States, but but in general, as the population ages and as we begin to see birth replacement rates drop pretty much every country in the in the world we are going to have fewer people to do work to provide tax dollars which will then be applied to an older population and i count myself in that population but then those obligations social security medicare etc will have they have to be funded so there are entitlement programs that that distract the government from doing things like building another space shuttle. So how do we fix that? I, I would argue that it has to be done in the commercial world. And so, you know, as as contentious as Elon Musk is for some people as, as a figure, I, I think that he is likely to be the person that is, if we are to reach commercialization of space and get an orbital ser- and service vehicle uh, that's viable from an economics perspective, I, I think it comes from the commercial sector. I think it has to. Um, I, I don't see the United States building another shuttle. I don't see us going to yeah. that point. And there's, I could make a bunch of statements about how SpaceX seems to have no problems getting uh, platforms off of the launch pad. I mean, I just watched the SpaceX launch last night out of uh, out of Florida on on YouTube. But but yet this whole um, more and more, I, I just see the delays in the U.S. program. Right. As, as we, it seems like, oh, we were going to launch that rocket. No, we're not going to allow, we're going to have to put that launch off. We're going to put it off. We're going to put it off. So if you enjoy watching rocket launches, as I do, you see a whole lot of SpaceX launches and you don't see a whole lot of US or even joint launches going off for governments. Right. Because we, we seem to be in this mode of, well, let's let the private sector solve space. And in which case, then, okay, fine. Orbit or reuse of boosters. Uh, you know, uh, that that's that's really important, right? And SpaceX has fixed that problem. They've gotten to the point where some of these boosters, I, I, I don't even know. Like, what's, does any, do you, any of you know how many, what's the yeah, record, the record for I booster think it's 13, reuse? 13, isn't it? 13? Okay, yeah. Uh, no, I think it's, I think it's higher than that. Higher than it? that, Didn't yeah, we just hit 15, 16? Is we it? talked okay. about it recently. <laughs> that's really impressive. I mean, to get to the point where just a few years ago, we were just dumping things in the ocean, uh, to go to the point where you can reuse uh, a booster 16 times. that That's really impressive. Two at 16, one at 15, two at 14. That's amazing. I mean, and, and that's just within a few years, right? We've, we've gone to that. We've gone from a disposable launch vehicle paradigm to 16 reuses in a few years. I think that's really impressive. And likely it's going to be, okay, great. At some point they're going to figure out, um, yeah, we're going to need to get up and service some of those Starlink satellites. Um, so Elon will build a, effectively a service truck 
that'll go be able to go up. Yeah, when when he's forced to, yeah, it'll happen. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe he may be he may be forced by his own economics to do it. It's not like forced by a government. You know, you you will do this, but more like we have to do this because we have to service the constellation. No, no, I totally agree. I don't think the U.S. government could force Elon Musk to do anything. Um. Or to not do anything. I mean, look at the environmental issues in Boca Chica and like, it doesn't matter. SpaceX is going to do what they're going to do and they'll deal with the fallout later, which is like a very good attitude to have in some places and not in others. And that's kind of just the mixed bag of problematic and cool that you get with SpaceX and Elon Musk and all that. So I was going to bring up this, uh, this article that I saw today, uh, on space news. Uh, the headline is target of European debris removal mission hit by other debris. And so basically it's, it's one of the, um, uh, Vespa upper stages that they, um, had contracted, um, a, a private company to go and deorbit, um, was hit by untrackable debris. And, you know, basically ESA got the call, um, from, I guess, us space force or whatever saying, Hey, actually we're now tracking, uh, multiple pieces of your satellite. So mm. sorry. Um, yeah. It's just like, yeah, it's, it's certainly, I, I think, um, there's going to be a lot of missteps, uh, in, in that. I mean, it's a big challenge. Um, we're going to learn a lot, I think over the years and there are going to be mistakes. I mean, we, we look at how, uh, right. The starship launch platform just got destroyed by its own rockets, right. The recently, <laughs> and they were like chucking concrete miles, miles away. And <laughs> I mean, that was, that was a bit much, right. In that you go, well, why didn't you do water cooling right off the bat, right? <laughs> yep. um, I mean, we, we see water cooling as a, as a technology in, in NASA. And, and so you would ask the question, well, why aren't we water cooling right off the bat? Now, clearly, water cooling has become the, the solution to that, and, and they, they're going to do it. But, but, I, but it, to, your, to your point, I think we're going to make a lot of mistakes early on. And, and that's just going to be one of the challenges that, that we face. The question is, is whether the economics support that space commercialization in, in, in service orbit service. Con there has to be a return there. Obviously, you know, financially, it has to make sense because um, it's not easy, right? It's, it's not an easy thing to do. We will need to work through a lot of those initial challenges before we get to that point where where we can say that yes this is now at least revenue neutral if not revenue positive for us to be doing on orbit servicing. Well yeah so we talked about low earth orbit but uh, let's go to the moon next and so I was wondering about how do you handle communications around the moon so there are some challenges as far as orbital dynamics uh, just because of the nature of the moon's gravity and then of course it's also very far away so I guess do you have any thoughts on how exactly you tackle that particular issue? Yeah so if we think about if we think about the way that a network gets built in the you know on earth and and whether that be a wired or wireless network there's always that question of are we handling data routing locally or are we handling it uh in in a in a core or a, a network core that's that's somewhere else applying that to the concept of say lunar broadband we, we would have to then say we need to build some infrastructure on the moon routers and switches effectively that that would then allow the data to be kept local to, to the lunar environment and then we would then have to decide what data needs to come back from the moon to earth in, in other words there's there's going to be switches and routers whether they be on the lunar surface or in orbit likely both they would have to be both and as we begin 
getting up to the lunar surface or, or putting things in orbit around the, the moon, then we will have to effectively build a network likely to be a set of satellites, I would imagine. I mean, take Starlink and put it around the moon. That that would be the obvious choice. Um, and then decide, okay, well, how much of that is then going to get transferred back? And how do you do routing algorithms that allow the decision to be made, okay, this packet is destined for Earth, so I'm going to flip it and ship it back. And I'm going to then have to go across that that long link, right? That that quarter quarter or that uh, quarter million mile link, which is of course has a transit time, speed of light, not as it takes a few seconds to to get across that link. So so you you then have to have algorithms that are because currently the algorithms are sort of they presume, for example, most routing algorithms would presume that if the packet doesn't arrive within a certain you know some one second period, for example, I'm just throwing a number out. It's not one second, but think about it that way. If your algorithm said, well, if I don't get the packet, if I'm getting an acknowledgement within one second, then I'm going to presume the packet's lost. That doesn't work for the moon because it takes seconds to transit from lunar orbit to Earth orbit and then get down to the ground here. So you have to rewrite the algorithms to allow for that environment in which the transit of the data takes some period of time. And then I guess the, really the question is, is the, you know, the fuel right and the the delta v that it takes to get those platforms up to the moon and put and insert them into an orbit um you know it's low earth orbit doesn't require a lot of fuel um geosynchronous orbit for the us or or uh, lagrange point orbits require a lot more fuel well guess what to get to the moon you've got even more um and so it's got to get out there and then you've got to get it into uh, a system and so th these are all the things that we have to think about when we ask this question of like, well, how are we going to create effectively a lunar internet? And then how much does that cost? And and how long is it going to be before the network is to the point where it can be sort of generally usable? Right now, I guess the way that they handle it is they, they take the transit vehicle and they, they put it in orbit and then they, they go down to the surface and the transit vehicle is within sight of the ground vehicle for a period of time. But there's not a generally usable internet. There's no Comcast on the moon. You can't. <laughs> you can't just. You can't just sort of use the internet on the moon. You have to create an internet on the moon. Does TCP support interplanetary communications? Like, is there a way that you could configure your TCP connection to talk to the moon? Like on uh, Artemis One coming up they're not going to have internet while they're out there. But is there any chance that you could do that with current uh, protocols? There's There are efforts underway, and I'm not involved in that standards group at the IEEE myself, but I, I am aware through colleagues that I've spoken to that there are efforts to extend these protocols, TCP, et cetera, to serve orbital as well as lunar use cases. Of course, at some point you take this and you translate it to, okay, now we've got to build an internet on Mars. And how do we deal with that transit time? Because that's not just seconds, that's like minutes, right? Um, so there are efforts to think about the question of how do you do this? It's interesting, by the way, that there are also efforts to extend the 3GPP protocols, which are used for cellular. 3GPP release 18 has some early implementation of space-based cellular. 
and and that that's a new thing that that's been added in, in in the most recent release because they are beginning to ask the question of like okay AST Space Mobile was able to do a ground a smartphone to orbit call no terminal right it was a it was a Samsung i think it was a Galaxy S22 Ultra that did the call but they were actually able to connect from a smartphone to a satellite directly without a terminal and and so but of course as we if we generalize that that, that was a very, very particular case. We generalize that. We now have to have the cellular protocols capable of doing that. So there are efforts in both the IEEE as well as non-IEEE standards organizations to address these questions. But I think we've got some time, of course, because we're not going to Mars tomorrow. But um, to your point, right, Artemis, uh, that that gives us an opportunity to test some of these these some of these scenarios and kind of ask the question like. Does the standard support this? Were there issues? How could we improve? Standards, of course, are always being revisited and updated as time goes on. So my guess is that we will we will iterate towards the solution that will ultimately be useful, but it'll take some time. All right. Well, now on to the penultimate question that we have for all of our guests. Where would you like to be found on the internet? Uh, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, you can find me on X at uh, my call sign, Whiskey 6 Delta Tango Whiskey. That's um, mostly just for pithy takes and comments, that uh, <laughs> snarky comments, of course. But um, yes, on, uh, on LinkedIn, we are um, on LinkedIn as Oku Solutions. And um, you can find us on the web at okusolutions.com. And I typically link to my socials. If I'm, if I'm going to be doing something like a podcast, I, I, will, I will post it on LinkedIn and, and X. Uh, so if you want to find us there, that, that'd be great. Okay, then our final question uh, is less of a question, more of a miniature game show that I stole from Planet Money. Uh, it's a game called Overrated, Underrated. It is a quick fire list of products or concepts. And we would like you to tell us if the world sees too much value in them, too little value in them, or in the rare occasion, correctly values them. Sound good? Yeah. Okay, first, overrated or underrated, uh, the ISS ham radio setup. I would say that it is underrated because I've, I've worked via the ISS and uh, I've, I've made contacts by it and I've, I don't see a lot of other hams doing it, but I, but I think it's a really interesting setup that a lot of people should try more. So in the ham radio world, I'd say it's underrated. Okay. Overrated or underrated Tedris. I would have to say that it is probably, I would say it's probably overrated. Overrated or underrated uh, V to V that's vehicle to vehicle and V to E vehicle to everything communications. It is currently overrated. And, and I'll qualify the answer by saying that without a robust network for it to take advantage of, there's a lot of promise in V to V and V to E, but until we get a network in place that could, that can take advantage of it or be taken advantage of by the vehicles. It, it's currently way more hyped than it is useful. Overrated or underrated 5G? Complex answer. 5G is so many different things. It's not just a standard for handset broadband like it has been in the past. So I would say that 5G is both underrated and overrated. It's underrated in the sense that we haven't really seen the use cases materialize on the network, but it's overrated in the sense that a lot of people see 
5G is simply making their handset faster. And that's not what 5G is about. It's it's about more than just handsets. And, and I think we haven't really quite realized that yet. It was designed to be more than just for handsets, but I don't think a lot of people realize that. All right. Last one. Overrated or underrated, LoRaWAN. I think LoRaWAN has a lot of promise. I, I think that it is underrated in the sense that as we have a chance to deploy more LoRaWAN, we will begin to see people use it. Uh, right now, it's sort of niche and very specific in its use. I would say that in the future, we will start to see a lot more use of LoRaWAN, but currently it's not well understood. And so for that reason, I would say that it is probably underrated. Uh, that is the correct answer. I totally agree. I've got such a soft spot for Laura. So. <laughs> all right, David, thank you so much for taking all this time to talk to us. It was surprising. I mean, like th this sounds very insulting, but like I did not expect to have as much fun uh, having this conversation with you. So thank you so much. Well, I had a great time. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. So let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, we have lots of winners for this one. We have eight people. We have Chris S., the Greek Ryan R., Sykal, Robert Allen, Astro, Uncle Willie, and Chubby. So lots of people got this one right. The clue was icicle, and the event, I guess, was very icicle-related in some way because <laughs> everyone you know, like understood the connection there. So what was the event? Yeah, so the event was the 30th of August, 1984. It was the launch of STS-41D. And I'm sure everybody was thinking, and definitely with a lot of the answers saying, uh, referring to a peacicle rather than an icicle, but I'll actually get into the details because there was a bit more of what happened. Um, I think it's a very fascinating mission as well. There's a lot of other cool stuff that you could have talked about, including to start, this was the maiden flight of Discovery. So this orbiter, you know, flew for the first time with this uh, 41D mission, right? So this is 1984, so yeah. that timing tracks. Uh, the crew was uh, one heck of a crew. Uh, you had uh, Hank Hartsfield commanding for the first time. And so, uh, like I've mentioned before, right, the way that, you know, being a space plane, you really needed pilots to be able to be your commander and your pilot. And they didn't want the commander to be someone who had never flown to space before. So those very first shuttle missions, you had these Apollo people um, or, you know, Skylab or Apollo Soyuz Test Project or even an X-15 pilot, um, Joe Engel. Uh, you had them serve as the commanders and they would basically, you know, get the experience under the belt for your first generation of pilots. And those people were like all drawn from the manned orbital laboratory, the mole mission. So like, you know, that was a crew that, well, they really were the first shuttle commanders, like the ones that are the first shuttle only pilots, I should say, the people who cut their chops and flew exclusively on the shuttle. And so Hank Hartsfield was one of them. He flew with Ken Mattingly, of course, uh, famously portrayed by Gary Sinise. And so in any event, there was, you know, the rest of the crew, of course, were, you know, really awesome too. Uh, you had Mike Coates was the pilot. So getting his, you know, learning his chops before he went and became a commander. And then uh, you had three mission specialists. Uh, you had uh, Mike Mullane, Steve Hawley, and Judy Resnick, all, you know, famous shuttle astronauts. And then you had a payload specialist, uh, Charlie Walker, who I believe flew more than once. So we go back in time to uh, June. Uh, June 25th uh, was their first attempt, but there was a computer problem or something. And so they pushed it back to June 26th. And that's when, you know, you could have had your 
own potential twist uh, based on that abort alone, because that was the first ever uh, pad abort for the shuttle, the first uh, RSLS or redundant set launch sequencer abort. And so the computer on the SSME said something's off nominal and they aborted at T minus four seconds. So, I mean, the engines were firing. That's part of why you had that, them firing for a number of seconds to get them up to full thrust before you let loose with the SRBs and also to make sure that everything was fine because these were very complicated engines that had a very specific sequence of things that had to turn on and open and go at the right times. And so basically- well, don't forget uh, that the thing that you do after that is start up the solid rocket, uh, the solid boosters, and then you don't have a choice. Yes. <laughs> yep. Uh, as the astronauts uh, say, basically every time uh, they're doing their kind of press, uh, uh, their post-flight briefings, they always say, when those SRBs light, you know you're going somewhere. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so uh, specifically, there was a um, uh, the, the main fuel valve, uh, uh, channel A uh, main fuel valve on... Uh, SSME-3 uh, basically had an issue with one of its actuators. I guess it didn't open all the way or something, or something was incorrect. And as a result, uh, they shut things down. And so there's an easy enough solution, replace uh, that engine. And so they put a different one on when the, the, this shuttle eventually flew. But there was something scarier to it. And I don't want to go into all these details, but like basic, because again, this could be its own twist if on its own. But there was a hydrogen fire at the pad. Uh, afterwards. The water deluge system, right? We we're talking about water deluge, uh, you know, and sound suppression before. So I had to bite my tongue earlier in the episode <laughs> because uh, they basically, it sounded like they cycled it on and off a few times to kind of like, you know, dump a lot of water at the base of the pad. But they also had um, essentially sprinklers, what they call it, you know, their Firex, uh, fire extinguishing system. And so uh, they had sprinklers uh, blasting the left side of the orbiter with a nice little mist for like an hour, uh, if I remember correct, if I read, cor uh, read correctly. You know, they talked about how scary it could have been that if they had just gone and, you know, emergency egressed onto those slide wire baskets and uh, that might have sent them into the hydrogen fire itself, uh, uh, which is invisible, which is what makes it kind of so scary. Uh, but even though there was some char and damage to the uh, uh, the right uh part of the uh, orbiter, uh, in particular the uh, the body flap, uh, everything turned out to be, you know, a-okay. Everybody, you know, there's there's no no injuries or anything like that, although the crew was absolutely soaked with water by the time they got out uh, or got, you know, <laughs> away from the, uh, the pad and everything. And so there's actually a fun picture you can see that shows them just kind of soaked with water. It's black and white, so it's not terribly obvious, but you can kind of tell Mike Mullane, you know, his his flight suit <laughs> has different uh, patterns of dark and light. And so, yeah. And uh, Judy Resnick's hair uh, is definitely damp in the picture. So anyway, let's go to this actual twist. August 30th, um, they finally launched. Uh, there was, you know, after this multi-month uh, delay, uh, there was a just shy seven-minute delay because two private aircraft kind of wandered into their, you know, restricted space. But they were able to launch, get on orbit, piece of cake, everything was fine. And the real meat and potato of the mission, right, being a 1980s shuttle mission pre-Challenger, uh, was, you know, if it wasn't DOD, it was, you know, getting some commercial satellites launched out there, right? Or I guess doing science. And so, uh, yeah, so they deployed three satellites, which is pretty impressive. Uh, two of them, uh, you know, had the Pac-Man or Pac-Men solar covers, I guess, uh, the sun uh, shades. And so those opened up and they just kind of were spun out and released that way. And then uh, CINCOM 4 uh, was also deployed. And this was the first 
uh, satellite actually designed to be deployed from shuttle itself. Because right, you got to remember how optimistic everybody was at this point um, about it being a space truck. And this one uh, is frisbeed out, which is a pretty fun way of deploying it. It's kind of tipped on its side and heaved out and spun in that regard. And uh, and of course they had the their. Uh, uh, payload specialist, and so this was, uh, you know, the non-professional astronaut, but the person who was in charge of a continuous flow electrophoresis system. Um, just, you know, that actually flew, I think, more than once on the shuttle uh, and was doing its thing. But uh, uh, in addition to uh, those two, I guess, getting rid of the, uh, deploying the satellites, all of them successfully deployed, by the way, and then the uh, the CFES system, um, they also did a solar panel panel demo, which is pretty cool. So like we're talking like a prototype, you know, super duper early of I guess what would have been even before. I don't know if Space Station Freedom was really in the works in 1984, uh, possibly, but one way or another, they wanted to test giant solar panels. And so they, uh, they, you know, they released it, you know, coming out of the side, they deployed it out of the payload bay. Uh, they did a little, sh you know, shake in to test it dynamically. And it basically did a great job. And so not surprising the, you know, the solar panels uh, before the iRoses that we now have replacing parts of them. Um, they've been doing a great job on the International Space Station. And so uh, that was kind of everything else that was happening in this mission. But as for the clue and what I want to focus on is the icicle also commonly referred to as the peacicle. So here's the nitty gritty detail of what was going on here. And there is some incredible footage uh, where you can actually not only see the original icicle, but then you can see the peacicle grow because yes, there were in fact more than one, although they kind of merged together uh, at that point. Okay. This was a short mission, and uh, we'll see, thank goodness for that, <laughs> based on what the uh, crew had to do to, you know, deal with this icicle forming. Uh, so on September 2nd, so this is uh, a few days into their flight, uh, they were doing their third uh, supply water dump. Okay, and so there's, you know, there's supply water on the shuttle. This is uh, water that goes towards the... Uh, uh, what's it? The uh, well, it's water that you can drink. It's water that can be used for uh, hygiene, for uh, you know, rehydrating food, um, as well as uh, uh, some of the water can go into what's called the um, flash evaporator system, where that's a, a, a part of the larger uh, thermal control uh, for the, the shuttle. All right. And so you got these four tanks of uh, supply water. And sometimes, you know, when they're all, you know, used up or dirty, whatever, you got to, you know, go and dump it out the side of your orbiter. And so in this case, you dump it out the port or left side of it. And um, if you look at the uh, close-up of the orbiter, you can see a bunch of holes and we were joking before the show that I, I just love figuring out what all these little holes and, you know, vent ports and panels and whatnot mean on the orbiter. So uh, if you are in a safe place and interested, I guess that's also part of it, uh, and want to follow along, uh, go find yourself a picture or we'll have one in the uh, show notes uh, showing the, the, the port side of Atlantis in this case. And, um, right, so you've got the side hatch, uh, the... Uh, toilet bowl that we were talking about <laughs> last week. And um, as you move towards the rear, there's actually the first hole you might see is one of the hoist, the, the forward hoist attachment, um, right? Because sometimes you got to pick up the shuttle to like, you know, mate it to the shuttle carrier aircraft or to tip it vertical, you know, when it's in the processing facility or to do whatnot. That's just a structural attachment point. 
Uh, you might not see that, though, and instead see a little cover that it has when it's on orbit, apparently. And so if you do see a little bit of um, uh, surface insulation with four holes, kind of, you know, it's a square piece of insulation with these four holes, I guess, that are holding it in place. Underneath there is where that forward uh, hoist attachment is. Okay. Now, if you go further back, then you just see a big old hole just sitting there doing its thing. And that hole in particular is for uh, basically a relief valve for uh, oxygen and nitrogen. And then you're going to see a pair of holes that are one above the other. And they have black tiles around them. So that's kind of pretty noticeable. And so there's two holes there with these black tiles around them. And it turns out that those black tiles are very interesting and tied to this story. Now, the top one is the supply water vent port. And so that's where you dump this you know, supply water you want to get rid of that's been used. And then the lower one is the wastewater port. And so there was a single wastewater tank in the orbiter, and that's where you would dump your, you know, urine and, you know, wastewater. Uh, and, and fun enough, uh, just because I never get an opportunity to talk about it much, uh, these tanks were all located in the the deck that nobody ever talks about, that <laughs> the uh, was actually pressurized and people could go to, the lower deck of the shuttle. Uh, basically a crawl space underneath the mid-deck. Um, there, there is some footage of people going underneath there to kind of, you know, you know, fix things and troubleshoot things, but like, yeah, no one really talks about that ever. Yeah. And then the last hole in this area, if you go a little further to the right, that's where you see the yellow, you know, boxes with the text. That's the, uh, fu the fuel cell purge port. Uh, in particular on this side, it's the, uh, ga gaseous oxygen that gets dumped out of there. Uh, on the other side, you also see that kind of language and that's where the gaseous hydrogen, uh, as part of the, uh, fuel cell, uh, needs to get vented. And so, okay, so those two uh, ports, one above the other, right, you've got the, and it's kind of important as well, the supply water port is on the top, the wastewater port is directly underneath it, and that is where you dump it out. So they're doing their third supply water dump, and they get the nozzle, uh, they're reading, uh, I guess, data from the nozzle that says that it's hit uh, less than 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And that means uh, that basically is indicative to them that ice has formed there. And so they are like, okay, well, that could be a problem potentially. They then actually do a, uh, at some point they had already done a uh, wastewater dump, which is again underneath where this ice is apparently formed. And while they thought there was ice there at one point, it eventually kind of just went away. And so uh, no big deal. Okay. But once they had figured out that there was ice now sticking out of the, uh, based on this nozzle, they wanted to, first off, cancel these supply water dumps. And the way you can do that is when you end up with like extra, you know, wasted water, I guess, because you've already, you know, I guess showered with it, quote unquote, or, you know, whatever else you would use. Uh, you could just dump all that back into the uh, flash evapor evaporator uh, system. And so basically take that. Water, instead of dumping it overboard, you just put it back into the system and let it go and temperature control, climate control the orbiter, I guess. <laughs> so they got rid of these dumps because you don't want icicles forming. Fine. Now, wastewater dumps, though, were still crucially important to have, right? Because at some point, your meat bags, you got to release stuff that you're consuming. Now, to go and make sure that they weren't going to, you know, just create another giant let's say, peaceicle in this case, because <laughs> it's wastewater. So f before they did their next wastewater dump, they went and put the, had the uh, canadarm, the RMS, go and basically aim itself at where these two water dumping ports are. And so this is where this footage is just crazy. 
They then begin the wastewater dump, and after only 5 to 7% of it being dumped, you see a pretty substantial amount of wastewater ice form and just grow. Like, and it's, 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 it looks fascinating the way it does. And it's also sitting underneath this gigantic uh, icicle from the, uh, uh, the supply water. And so they stopped it after 7%. And they were like, okay, that's a problem as well. We don't want to create – and if that was only you know, a few percent essentially, that could have been an issue if they dumped it all uh, potentially. And so these kind of merge. And so that's why the piecicle, the line share, the piecicle is actually supply water, which isn't wastewater. So it is more of an – it's a contaminated icicle, I suppose, <laughs> rather than properly calling it a piecicle. Although piecicle obviously is a lot more fun to talk about. So I have like a basic physics question. <laughs> I would have thought that when you vent the water in space, it would evaporate before it would freeze into ice. Why doesn't that happen? Well, so it's jumping ahead a little bit, but the upshot is that there was seed ice near the nozzle. And so then as the water passed by the seed ice, you wound up with more ice. And that's how you ended up growing it like that. Interesting. Yeah. So Colin in the chat asks, how'd they get that camera angle Canada arm? It, it must be, right? Because this camera angle looks like it's looking forward towards the the forward hoist and the vent port. Indeed. Indeed. They had the TV camera on Canada Arm go and point itself uh, there. Uh, they, you know, they got it nice and framed well. Uh, Hank Hartsfield was doing a lot of IMAX footage as part of this as part of this <laughs> flight. So I wonder if he just really liked, you know, he was very good at camera work. And so, yeah, they were able to get a, a nice uh, framed view of it when they uh, created or when they did the wastewater dump that led to the, yeah, the piecicle. And so, and, and again, just to give you the context, if, if, you know, if you're, you know, driving or jogging, you know, you're at the gym or something right now, right? So you've got these two ports that are directly one on top of the other. And so the wastewater is at the lower one and it's closer to the wing. And then above it, you've got the, the larger icicle that came from that supply water dump. So, okay. So first things first, they're going to cancel these wastewater dumps because that's obviously an issue. Uh, to get around it, um, you can't just, you know, send the wastewater into the flash of evaporators or something like that. So they just went old school, right? Mercifully, this is what I was alluding to before. Mercifully, this was a short six-day mission. <laughs> and this had happened after a few days in. And so they had to spend the last, you know, two or three days maybe uh, just peeing into bags, essentially, and, and just, you know, making sure that, you know, you, you, st you stowed them away somewhere on board. Um, so how can you get rid of these? You don't want to re-enter with them. Uh, they could break off and potentially contact the orbiter. So the first, well, I don't know if it's the first, but among other things, they tried uh, some RCS firings to dislodge it, you know, maybe uh, wiggle your orbiter around a little bit. Uh, that didn't work. Um, they made sure, uh, in, 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 you know, no matter what they were going to do, to go and try and keep the port side of the spacecraft in sunlight so that way the ice could potentially sublimate because, you know, this can be exposed to sunlight. And evidently, I guess, uh, wastewater sublimates better than uh, the, the supply, you know, water because it did a better job of uh, basically sublimating away. But the ultimate solution turned out to be, uh, right, you've got Canada Arm right there, so why not go and give it a little... Thwack. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like the best idea. <laughs> what a, like, what a, you know, this is like, I don't know, could you imagine them doing something like this? I mean, obviously there's not a shuttle now, but this, this sounds like a, like, they really were flying by the seat of their pants early in the shuttle program where they were doing sort of like, let's do a three-person EVA and let's have people, you know, fly your jetpack far away from the orbit. Like, they really seem to be all about, you know, <laughs> they, they seemed 
flying by the seat of their pants. Like, uh, yeah. It's kind of like when you don't have like a windshield scraper and they were like, we got to get rid of this ice. You just use, you know, a stick or something. Right. Yeah. You gotta, or you, a cannon arm. You, you've got a stick right there. Yeah. Might as well give it a little bop. Yeah. And I like the way uh, Colin in the chat uh, is putting it. Uh, scratch that itch with cannon arm. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so they, they go and do that. And there is, in fact, footage of it. You can't see because of just where the uh, the TV camera is placed. You can't see the actual point of contact, but you can see some bits of ice go uh, flying off. And uh, yeah, that ended up working. Now, they, they had to aim for the supply water icicle because the wastewater one was too close to the wing. Right, because you might be thinking, like, is there a risk of you, you know, hitting the wing? And the answer is yeah. But they, you know, the people on the ground, you know, planned the maneuvers very carefully. Right, you got to articulate it in a very precise way, and they were able to successfully bop and liberate the uh, supply water icicle. And uh, yeah, and that went drifting off. It kind of looks like Great Britain to me. Um, it, 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 it was, uh, you know, it was about 12 inches in diameter, uh, at the base. And then it kind of t- tapered out, uh, 27 inches away from the orbiter. So that's, you know, basically it, a couple it of feet. It does look like Great Britain. Mm. Mm. And, and there, and there is, there is footage of this Great Britain icicle floating in space too, just like after it had been knocked off and liberated. So, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And then mercifully, like I had said before that the wastewater, uh, piecicle was more, likely to sublimate due to sunlight exposure. And so they were able to get rid of it that way. And so that turned out to, you know, be the case. And they, yeah, that was the kind of end of, I guess, this saga. Um, they, uh, I, well, I guess before I finish the mission, let's just, while we're here, talk about what had happened. And so, the, yeah, David, right, you had asked, you know, this seems a little odd. Why would the water necessarily, you know, freeze and create a ever greater forming icicle or piecicle? And the reason is, is that the uh, uh, ice particles had formed uh, next to the nozzle, basically in a recess between these new, this new type of surface insulation, right? One that the program then continued to use. Uh, you might have heard of AFRSI, which is uh, Advanced Flexible Reusable Surface Insulation. I think that's it. I know some of those are correct. Uh, but in any event, they had this surface insulation go all the way up to the, the, the ports, and because of the way that they were, you know, physically set up, that meant that there was a uh, 0.2 inch recess between the nozzle and the blanket. And because of the blankets kind of having the sort of uh, fibriness that it has, uh, for whatever reason, ice liked to form there. And as a result, that seed ice would then have, you know, basically the water ice coming out of the ports would contact it, or, you know, bump into the seed ice and that would end up growing more and more ice. Now, a second part of the story, too, is that not only was, you know, the uh, that seed ice there, but the water was being uh, shot out at a lower pressure than typical uh, because of that flight, uh, sorry, flash evaporator system I've alluded to a couple times now. Because it was also running, that meant that the PSI, the water coming out, was lower, and therefore it was, you know, more spread and therefore running into the these ice uh, seeds uh, at a you know a greater rate and so that's why this happened and it, it looks like from the video it looks like when they're venting the lower port there the p port <laughs> um, <laughs> um or vent it, <laughs> <P-port>. <laughs> it 
it looks like I mean I, I can't tell, and it's, since it's in zero G, it's really hard to tell. Is it freezing in real time, like just as it's coming out? Because it looks like a, it just looks like an icicle that's like growing. You know what I mean? Mm. Like just as quickly as it's being vented, it's turning into a solid piece of ice. And I can't imagine. Again, I, I still can't imagine it would freeze that quickly. That's the part that really confuses me. It must be very cold water, right? I mean, or does water crystallize into ice much more easily in a vacuum when there's a seed crystal there or something like yeah, that? Gonna- sort of- yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, I think that's, I think you kind of nailed it at the end there. My understanding is that when you're, you're in the vacuum of space and you've got water passing over ice, uh, it's going to be able to just, you know, phase change much quicker than when it's, you know, bathed in an atmosphere around it, you know, that'll be able to keep it, you know, warmer longer before it freezes. That is interesting. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, my understanding is that's a real time, you know, video of it forming. Uh, This, it's just, this ice just snakes out. I think Colin actually has got an important piece of the puzzle, which is that when the liquid sublimate or not sublimates because it's not solid yet but as the water evaporates um, and and turns into water vapor that's flying away it's taking away a lot of the heat and so the rest of the ice just gets colder and colder and colin says the rest of it is just begging to freeze and i think that's the key is how much water there was in one place and it gets cold enough to actually skip um the boiling uh due to low pressure to get all the way down to the solid form, just because there's enough of it that it insulates itself from the the pressure, which is like not really right, but like it's the inside is protected from the pressure, and then the outside is boiling off really quickly and cooling the inside down. And you know, my introduction to how things work in vacuum come from uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, where. Uh, <laughs> Who was it? O'Brien and um, Dr. Crusher like had to hold their breath and stomp across the um, the shuttle bay. That was actually that was actually Jordy and oh right, Jordy, Jordy and Crusher. Yeah, and uh, you know they (laughs) they uh, were warned. Crusher warned him. Okay, you're gonna want to hold your breath. Don't (laughs) let it all out, or you will destroy your lungs. And uh, every time I watched that episode, I always tried to hold my breath as long as I could. Um, so that that's where my where my knowledge of how things work in vacuum comes from. So I could be totally, totally way off. So, yeah. So we've got that seed ice that's forming near the nozzles because of this setup. And that's the, essentially the whole issue. And so the fix was to replace and not have the surface, the AFRSI, go all the way to the noz- uh, to the yeah the nozzles i guess was instead to have tiles placed around it and black tiles in particular and so that would you know they're black they're going to absorb a lot of sunlight they're going to be warm enough and that should prevent the ice from forming there and indeed it did and so that's why if you look at the earlier orbiters right or at least you know discovery on this mission you can see that the insulation goes all the way to these vent ports but now if you visit any of your orbiters, you're going to see where I was describing these holes are these two black tiles with the two ports mm-hmm. sitting in the middle of them. And so that's why you have black tiles there. So you don't form piecicles in the future. <laughs> don't form yep. piecicles. You don't form piecicles. Yeah. And then just to end things with a little bit of scariness, there was uh, some ice formation during STS-41B. Uh, they actually had done a dual dump 
where they did the supply water and wastewater at the same time, created an icicle. Uh, and I don't know what the story is that, you know, would be a different twist if, but evidently it broke off during re-entry and caused some damage to the, I guess, the left ohms pod. And so, yeah, uh, an ice strike on re-entry, um, which is scary. And then as for this mission, uh, you might say, okay, well, surely the peaceicle was the end of, you know, their troubles. Um, and they successfully defeated it, which is great. But uh, they had one last hiccup, which was essentially oxygen leaking uh, out of their uh, uh, Eclis system, their life support, uh, on the last day. And basically, there was a heat exchanger that was installed backwards. And they wound up losing 150 pounds of oxygen before they were able to basically close off, I guess, a uh, an isolation valve. And the rest of the system was working fine. And again, thank goodness it was a short six-day mission. But in any event, they touched down in Edwards after six days on orbit, made it one piece. And yeah, this mission was a wild ride. But that's this week in spaceflight history. Dennis, I am so excited that you have gotten so deep into shuttle. <laughs> thank um, you. Like it, it's, yeah, every uh, every week... Dennis hits us in the chat with, hey, do you guys know what this feature on the outside of shuttle is? Do you know what this on the inside? Do you know what, how to find a photo of this? And like, I'm always just like, what in the heck is this kid doing? And like, it's, it's always good. It's always good. All right. Uh, next week is going to be the 5th through the 11th of September. David, do you have a clue for us? I do. This is another one of those part two clues. So Dennis's clue is icicle. My clue is icicle and pebble. For this week in 2006, I almost forgot to mention the year. So there you go. <laughs> All right. If you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing, email us at the info at the orbitalmechanics.com. Shoot us a toot on Mastodon. Use the hashtag thisweeksf or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server. And good luck. Good luck. So moving on to upcoming spaceflight events, we got six events, most of them launches. And Ben, what's the first launch? Well, it's, it's not a launch. Oh, it's uh, not. And it's, it's not a landing, <laughs> as as and it. it's, <laughs> it's not a launch, not a landing. It's actually a news conference about a landing. So this is going to be happening Wednesday, August 30th. Uh, there's going to be a news conference uh, about OSIRIS-REx's sample capsules, uh, landing and recovery plans. We mentioned this last week. Going to mention it again because it's cool. So again, Wednesday, August 30th at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And then on the 31st, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5, and that is launching the SDA Tranche or Tranche 0B. This is a the second mission launched by the Space Development Agency for the Tranche or Tranche Zero transport layer. I don't know how to say that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I feel self-conscious saying Tranche. It, I mean, it's, a, it's uh, an American military project, so I think they probably say Tranch, Tranch with a southern accent. Tranch. <laughs> so the launch time for that is um, a window of 1426 uh, UTC through uh, 1557 UTC. So a nice large window, and that's launching from Vandenberg uh, from Slick 4E. So check that one out. And then if you uh, want an East Coast Falcon 9 launch, you're in luck because also on August 31st, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 taken off from the Cape. And this will be taking Starlink Group 613 to LEO. And uh, yeah, so in this case, the launch window is uh, actually it starts on the 31st at uh, 2331 UTC and extends until uh, the next day, September 1st, uh, the Friday at 0401 UTC. Then we have kind of an extended event that we're all going to lump in together. This is Crew 6 is coming home from ISS. So uh, Thursday, August 
31st at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. They're going to be airing farewell remarks uh, from ISS uh, on NASA TV. Then on Friday, September 1st, they're going to cover the hatch closing, which is scheduled at 7.20 a.m. Eastern Time. And then they're just going to run uh, audio-only commentary, uh, apparently, on NASA TV uh, over the next like 24 hours, because on Saturday, September 2nd, is when the deorbit burn happens at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Um, and their uh, splashdown is scheduled for no earlier than 9.38 a.m. Eastern Time. Very uh, unround precise number there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so keep an eye out from Thursday all the way to Saturday. There's going to be all these events happening uh, on NASA TV with basically continuous coverage. But the big times are 7 a.m. on Friday uh, or 7.45 a.m. on Friday and then 8.30 a.m. on Saturday. And then after that, on the 2nd of September, uh, we have a PSLV in the XL configuration. And that is launching Aditya L1, which is going to the heliocentric L1 point. So between the sun and earth, which is really cool. Uh, so this is an Indian solar observation satellite. And uh, yeah, it's going to make all kinds of measurements of the sun's uh, corona, it looks like, um, and solar wind, things like that. Do all kinds of sun science at the L1 point like you do. Um, so that's that's very cool. And I've never seen in our list of the orbits uh, heliocentric L1. That's how that shows up. That's kind of neat. So the launch window for that is from 0400 UTC through 0800 UTC. So a four-hour launch window launching from Satish Dawan Space Center from the first launch pad. So that'll be very cool. Check that one out too. And then finally, we got a nice, uh, uh, we'd seen a tweet from China and Asia Spaceflight, uh, which uses the handle at CN Spaceflight on uh, Twitter. And so uh, the private company uh, Galactic Energy is going to use their Series 1 rocket to take uh, four uh, uh, IoT, Internet of Thing, constellation satellites, in this case, uh, numbers 21 through 24, to orbit. And uh, what's also exciting about this is that this will be the first sea launch uh, for this company in this rocket. And so this is scheduled for sometime on September 5th from a Hayong spaceport, uh, which I guess is in the water. And um, yeah, and uh, should be pretty cool. And I guess uh, if you keep an eye out for it, you might be able to get a more precise uh, launch time uh, as we get closer. Or not. All right. Those are your upcoming space flight events. All right. And that means it's time to deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris, Colin, Mike, Astro, Broomvala, Chubby, Gopal, The Greek, Dave M., and Delta V for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. Or you can skip all of that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.